Welcome to episode 1076 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. Hello. We covered our weekends in the pre-episode banter, or the pre-episode, pre-banter episode. (laughs) I don't know how to say it. Before we started recording, I had a pretty good weekend. You actually didn't say. How was your weekend? That's fine. Well, I should, it's probably not ever interesting to listen to people talk about the weather, but it got to 100 degrees both days, I think, in uh. Portland, Oregon, which is not something that we are accustomed to experiencing. And so even though we no. we try to schedule every single weekend to get out in the wilderness, this was a weekend where the earth was trying to kill us. And so we stayed inside and yeah. not allow that to happen. Well, get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have a few banter topics, or at least I do. I don't know what you have. I wanted to ask you just about something you wrote about, which is the Red Sox and high fastballs. Hmm. I have not read the post yet, but I was intrigued by the title because I am not sure what I'm supposed to think about high fastballs these days. Like it was a strategy that seemed to be in vogue maybe a year or two ago and everyone was talking about how high fastballs were the new thing and I haven't heard it as much recently. There was suggestion that high spin fastballs are better if you throw them high in the zone and then you did a post looking for more high fastballs as a counter to the home run surge and I think you didn't find them really. There hasn't been a trend toward them, but I know that according to to the title of your post, the Red Sox are all in on high fastballs and the Rays are all in on high fastballs. And those are obviously two of the the heavily analytical teams, or at least have been of late. So does that mean that this is a good thing that everyone should be doing? Should teams be doing more of this? Or is it entirely dependent on the makeup of your pitching stuff? Is this a strategy where if you ask me about the post, that way you don't have to read it? Because I got that. I'm going to use that on you. And that that (laughs) saves me half an hour every few days. (laughs) Right. So high fastballs, to speak generally, I remember talking about high fastballs years ago, right around when the Royals and A's were playing that one game playoff, somewhere around that. So uh, September, uh, August 2014, I had been doing some player interviews preparing for a Hardball Times article. This turned into a very long story. And within the article and within some of those interviews, I was talking to some players who were talking about how hitters had become so good at hitting pitches down that generally, if you have a swing that you have adopted to try to hit low pitches, you are going to become more vulnerable against high pitches. And this kind of goes mm-hmm. all the way back to the other non platoon splits written about in the book by Tango Tiger and Mitchell Lichtman about ground ball pitchers versus ground ball hitters and ground ball pitchers versus fly ball hitters and etc. And what they found was that fly ball hitters were better against ground ball pitchers. And it follows now that we have more information that that's because fly ball hitters tend to hit fly balls on pitchers that are down. Ground ball pitchers tend to throw pitches that are down. So to try to speed this up a little bit, it seemed like there could be a vulnerability if the league was getting better at hitting low pitches that there could be a vulnerability against high pitches. And again, we right. talked about my Trout and all this years yes, ago. Yes, so right. 
fast forward. I don't think it ever went out of fashion necessarily. I think the the Rays have gotten some, I would say maybe undue criticism. Their home run rate took off last year, uh, their pitching staff's home run rate, and the Rays have been connected deeply to throwing high fastballs. And I think a lot of people were hasty to say, oh, look, the Rays were made to pay <laughs> for their high fastballs by the home run spike. But of course, what the research has revealed is that the home run spike has come on pitches down and in the middle mm-hmm. of the zone and not on pitches up. So I think the Rays, their problem last year was that the pitchers were just bad, which is another mm-hmm. reason that you give up home runs. So speeding this up again, so much of the conversation in the last year, I don't know, it feels like it gets more intense by the day, but there's all this talk about the fly ball revolution. I'm kind of tired of hearing those three words put together. <laughs> what about air ball revolution? Yeah, that that's, better? <laughs> that's a decent substitute, but it is becoming more weary by the day. All yeah. this talk about players trying to hit more fly balls, which great, that makes sense. All this old timey non-knowledge to try to erase from players muscle memories so you've got all these players in theory trying to hit the ball in the air and generally not all the time but generally these players are trying to do that against pitches that are down there are more pitches down than there used to be as sort of a general trend players like to work down pitchers are told from the time that they're in little league keep the ball Mm -hmm. down if you have a broadcast who's talking to a color guy or maybe a studio reporter and they're trying to do a little in-game report on a pitcher who's been good but the reporter doesn't have anything actually insightful to say then that reporter will usually say the pitcher has been doing a good job of keeping the ball down. It's something Mm -hmm. that people say about a pitcher that doesn't mean anything. And of course, the strike zone has expanded downward, which made it more rewarding to pitch down. Yeah. Yeah, that too. Although it seems like that has stopped, or at least it's Mm -hmm. taken a a little intermittent pause. Anyway, so all these hitters are trying to hit low pitches. This is like Mad Libs of baseball trends over the last five years. We've just just named like... Putting it all together. This is the the sabermetric Da Vinci code, I'm telling you. So there's all this talk about hitters trying to hit pitches down, hitting low pitches. Guys like Ioannis Cespedes, Justin Turner, all these fly ball hitters, swing changers, they've gotten really, really good against pitches down, not so good against pitches up. So I don't know what's happened with the high fastball. I don't know why people wrote about it less often. I don't know if they actually have or if it's been less emphasized. There's been a very, very slight league-wide bounce back in the rate of high fastballs thrown the last two years, but nothing dramatic. It's still lower than the rate from like, I don't know, 2012, 2011. But the Rays are still throwing high fastballs. The Nationals are still throwing high fastballs. And now the Red Sox are throwing not only a bunch of high fastballs, they're throwing more high fastballs than any other team in baseball this season. And in fact, their fastballs are higher than any team's fastballs we've seen in the past decade since the start of pitch tracking technology. Now, of Mm. course, the difference is only like an inch on average, but it's a pretty substantial difference because the actual differences in pitch height between teams are just not that large. So the Red Sox are throwing a lot of high fastballs just by coincidence. Perhaps they've had a very good pitching staff. Their starting rotation is fourth, I think, in Fangraph's war. Their bullpen is fifth. They haven't had a good version of David Price. They haven't had any version of Carson Smith or Tyler Thornburg. Eduardo Rodriguez has been hurt. Stephen Wright has been hurt. So they haven't had exactly the pitching if they wanted to, but it's still been good. Of course, it helps to have Chris Sale and Craig Kimbrell. It helps to have mm-hmm. the best starter and maybe the best ender right now in the game. But still, I don't know if you knew that they had a, oh man, who was a Blaine Boyer, Blaine Boyer, mm. the guy who couldn't get anybody struck out last year. Right. He's on the Red Sox now, it turns out. This also came to the surprise of many Red Sox fans who commented on the post and <laughs> he's getting a few more strikeouts because he has increased mm. his average fastball by like more than six inches in no. terms of its height. So I went into a tremendous backstory detail in explaining <laughs> what this article was about. Could have summarized it very quickly, but the Red Sox are throwing a lot of high fastballs. 
Last year, they threw the second highest fastballs in baseball. This year, they're number one. That's not much of a difference. But the fact that they were already number two last year, and yet this year they have the largest team increase in average fastball mm-hmm. height suggests that there is indeed something going on. Just about yeah. every single one of their pitchers compared to last year has increased the fastball height. And I don't know why this hasn't caught on as more of a trend, except the actual answer is, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Let me walk that back. <laughs> why do you think? next question. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't I stop talking for a second so you can actually formally ask the question? <laughs> well, I assume that this is some sort of Brian Bannister brilliance that the Red Sox are doing here that we will find out about later. So yes, why have other teams not pursued the same strategy? So when we were all writing our Mike Trout high fastball articles, I think we would always ask the same question. Why don't they do this more? Why doesn't every team do this? Why is it only like the Royals for a while yeah. who were doing it, and the Astros and the Mariners, etc.? Why wasn't everybody doing that? And the answer we got was that pitchers just aren't comfortable throwing high in the zone because, again, they've been taught for decades in some cases to throw the ball down. And this is kind of the same. You could call it maybe the pitcher version of the hitter's air ball or fly ball revolution, where these, many of these hitters were taught for so many years to just hit a line drive or a swing down on the ball. And it's taken a lot of work to very, very gradually rewire some of those hitters. And it's still not to the extent that we see a huge league-wide trend in the amount of fly balls. So the pitcher equivalent would be they've been taught to throw the ball down. And so they have trained themselves to throw the ball down. They've tried to aim their fastballs down at the knees, and they were doing so probably unprepared for the reality in which the major leagues feature hundreds and hundreds of people who are looking for those specific low fastballs so that they can hit them in the air with their Mm -hmm. elevated swing planes or whatever we're saying these days. So pitchers are reluctant to throw fastballs down because it's not something they've done a whole lot. Some of them are more able to make that change than others. Like, turns out Blaine Boyer maybe can kind of do it. That's great. Chase Anderson, someone I want to write about soon, is throwing more high fastballs. He's just one more name. Felix Hernandez is doing the same thing. Dallas Keuchel is not, but not everybody needs to live at the top of the zone. Mm -hmm. I think pitchers feel like they don't have the same command up in the zone because it is different to throw up than it is to throw down. But I think it is something that we are going to see more of, even though the trend hasn't kicked off in earnest. There is just enough of a bounce back, just enough of a hint of a bounce back that I think we are going to see high fastballs coming back. And it feels inevitable. Okay. So if anything, aside from the ball is possibly capable of counteracting this home run surge it could be high fastballs and so maybe this is something we'll be hearing about over the next couple years as pitchers get comfortable with it or teams are able to advocate it or whatever are the red sox suppressing home runs successfully this year is that part of their pitching success I didn't analyze it specifically. Oh, but I can tell you that their fast balls as a staff have been the best in baseball. They've been the best by weighted on base percentage allowed. They've been the best by Fangraphs' super nerdy run values. They've been the second best by uh, Statcast's expected weighted on base percentage allowed. So the fast balls have been good. And so that captures kind of all of it. But in terms of mm-hmm. home run prevention, I don't know. It's hard because they have the park effect that they right. play in such a wacky stadium, but their home run rate is uh, below the league average, which mm-hmm. in this terms means better than the league average. Yeah. Okay, cool. That was a thorough answer. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to mention a favorite of ours, Carter Caps. I don't know if you were going to bring him up. but I was. There was a, yeah, I thought so. So there was a, a note on Twitter from the broadcaster of the Albuquerque Isotopes, the Rockies AAA affiliate, Josh Sushone, perhaps is how you pronounce it. 
And he noted that Carter Capps was charged with two illegal pitches, which I assume means balls were charged to him, for his back foot not staying on the rubber. And then Rod Barajas, who is still a baseball player. No, no, no. He's a manager. Oh, okay. All right. Good. That makes sense. I made the same mistake. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay. Then Rod Barajas was ejected for arguing about this, and then Capps was ejected after an additional two pitches, which I assume were ruled legal pitches. I assume he got away with those, and then he was ejected because he was still mad at it, or maybe he felt like they weren't any different from the pitches that had been ruled illegal. I don't know. I didn't see it. I'm extrapolating from one tweet, but... This is interesting. Carter Cubs still not pitching particularly well. Mm-hmm. He has less than a strikeout per inning. He's walking tons of guys and is not really making that convincing a, a case to be called up, but not terrible. But this is something that if he does make it back to the majors as entertaining as he was when he was completely unhittable and he was doing his hop and no one could touch him. Now he has the potential to be even more entertaining because if it works, then he's doing the hop and that's fun. If it doesn't work, then he's going to get balls charged to him all over the place. He's going to get ejected all the time for arguing about it. <laughs> so I am hoping that he makes it back and then we'll be like analyzing frame by frame images of every delivery of his, I'm sure. And maybe that will get tiresome over time. But this is uh, a a new development in the Carter Caps saga. I don't know if this is really being handled well or whether anyone could expect him to succeed under these conditions because now he not only has to worry about throwing his pitches and what the hitter is going to do, but also if he is complying with this rule. And I mean, I guess that's on him. He's trying to do something that no other pitcher really is trying to do. So that's his fault that he has brought this difficulty onto himself, but it seems like it would be tough to retain your full concentration when you're hyper aware of your mechanics and whether your back foot is actually touching the rubber and whether the umpire is about to say that what you just did is not allowed. I think I saw a tweet maybe from the same person, maybe from somebody else that said that Caps has not been called, had not been called for any of these illegal pitches in any games previous. Uh, at yeah. least not anytime recently. Caps, he was pitching in the minors and then he kind of disappeared for about a month and a half. He went to essentially extended spring training in May and the beginning of June because he was so terrible at everything in AAA. And so then he disappeared, then he came back, and then he was not very good again. The last two games, he has faced the minimum over three innings. He's struck out four guys. So he's been pretty good. Who knows what that means? But I have a, a sneaking suspicion. This is a guy who's coming back from Tommy John surgery. And of course, it could take a while to kind of find your yourself but you remember in spring training there was the footage of caps who had like a crow hop that he had mm-hmm. adopted in the bullpen and so i wrote about that a bunch of people wrote about that and then the padres came out and said no that's not how he's actually going to throw that would be stupid everybody who wrote about this is stupid he's going to go back to throwing <laughs> his normal way which is awesome and so that's what the padres had to say but he's been horrible in the minors since going down and he was not good in spring training and so while it's possible he's just trying to get his regular mechanics back and his arm doesn't feel good or whatever I have a sneaking suspicion that the Padres have made more dramatic changes to his delivery than they let on I don't know what Mm -hmm. that would look like because clearly he's still doing something kind of silly but the fact that he has been so wild when he was such a good strike thrower the last time he was healthy implies that something is off here and also the fact that it was just the first two illegal pitches called in a I'm just going to say 
pointless AAA baseball game on June 23rd. And then for the manager to get ejected and also Caps to get ejected, I don't know Mm -hmm. what would provoke two people to fly off the handle that quickly, but it seems to suggest to me that there was something else. Maybe there had been some sort of warning or the umpire had been jawing off or what, because it seems like Caps has been called for this before. He's going to get called for it again. Heads up, Mm -hmm. Carter Caps. They're not through with you. So I don't know what might have caused him to lose it so fast. Maybe it was just very hot in Albuquerque, which would not Mm -hmm. be uncommon. But something was up. And I wish that I had had the foresight to send in a message to try to get some more backstory on this. Because right now I don't know any more than you do. Yeah, well, it's a threat to his livelihood. So I wouldn't blame him for getting upset about it. And the more upset he gets, maybe the more reluctant he makes an umpire to call him on this in the future, right? Because no one wants to get yelled at usually. So maybe it's like an intimidation tactic or something. I don't know. I have sent you a link that I would like you to click on. And so if you open this link, it's a link to an article of a very short article headline caps and Barajas ejected in losing effort at ABQ by Eric O'Brien Sunday, June 25th, 2017. Now, you have opened the link, I assume, I'm not Mm -hmm. watching you, and you see what looks like a freeze frame of Carter Caps in a position such that it looks like he's trying to slug a guy in the face, even though he's not. Now, if you look below that, there's a little caption for the picture that's probably not supposed to be there. It says (laughs) capsejection.jpg, right? Mm -hmm. But there's another word. It's not a typo. (laughs) It's not Carter. I'm going to read this out for people. It's C-H-I-H-S space caps space ejection dot J-P-G. So that's uh, Carter Caps plays for the Chihuahuas. I did not know mm. and had never considered that the Chihuahuas could be shortened to the chiz? Cheese? <laughs> I guess it's the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> so I never thought about I, I that. Guess so yeah, no, yeah. neither did I. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Another thing I want to bring up, there's been a lot of discussion about the Nationals bullpen unrest. It sounds like the team is about to mutiny about how bad its bullpen has been. And most recently now they have picked up Francisco Rodriguez to try to rectify the bullpen, which tells you how bad the bullpen has been. And so there's been uh, some discussion. I think it was Tom Boswell of the Washington Post had an anecdote about a national walking up to him and he says another national as if this is happening all the time and he says when the hell are they going to get this done what are they waiting for waiting is just doing more damage and this in this case is upgrading the bullpen and so the team we've heard this before there have been previous reports about how upset the team is about this that I think there was a national position player who said that they feel like they have to win the game three times or something like that (laughs) because they keep losing the lead and having to regain it and whatever they are having to do they are doing it pretty successfully because the nationals are (laughs) one of the best teams in baseball but I guess you can understand why this is so frustrating to the team. Just it's annoying to feel like you have to keep digging yourself out of a hole or you get a lead and then you lose it. It, It's demoralizing. I don't know whether it actually makes the team play any worse. I think Russell Carlton has looked for examples of like tough bullpen losses to see if there was some kind of hangover effect where you play worse in subsequent games. And I don't think he found anything. But you can certainly understand why it would make playing for the Nationals more unpleasant. But if you are the Nationals, you don't have a strong incentive other than this to make a trade for a reliever right now, right? Because everyone's been linking them to David Robertson for a while now. 
and maybe that trade will still happen, but they have no need of David Robertson between June 24th and July 31st. Particularly, they need David Robertson once they make the playoffs. They could probably use other relievers once they make the playoffs, but there's very little danger that they are going to lose their first place position in a historically terrible division. So as far as making the playoffs goes, they don't really need a reliever. They've done just fine with a terrible bullpen to this point, and maybe if they hold out for another month and they're acquiring some rental from a team, the price goes down with each passing day because it's less value acquired. Maybe it doesn't go down linearly because teams know that playoffs is a a big part of why you want the reliever, and so that's still going to be in play. But still, not having to acquire that month of David Robertson, maybe you give up a slightly worse prospect or something. So I can see why they're waiting. I guess the question is whether that backfires because the team is miserable and mad, and maybe that has some kind of carryover effect too. I don't I don't know whether it does. Maybe they go get someone on July 31st and the bullpen's fine the second half and no one minds or cares about the fact that it was bad for the first half. But it's kind of an interesting question because you always wonder whether a team will be like the first mover at the trade deadline and whether they'll try to jump the gun and, and get a guy before everyone else is ready to buy. But the Nationals have some incentive to wait because the pennant or, or the division title is, is pretty much locked up for them already. Yeah. And what's interesting is if you just look over the last month, which is completely arbitrary, but the Nationals bullpen has been almost exactly league average by uh-huh. one measure, which would be win probability added, which is not very predictive, but it's a good barometer of how bullpens have been doing. Over the last month, the Diamondbacks have had the best bullpen. The Giants have had the worst. I think that probably fits how people have felt. The Rockies have had a steep drop-off into the middle of the pack, whatever. But the Nationals are there in 14th place by wins above replacement over the past month. The Nationals are right there in the middle as well. They obviously have not been great. They have not been bad. They have not been good. They've been just right in the middle. And they are nine games clear of the still bad Atlanta Braves. So like Mm -hmm. you said, there's really nothing for them to worry about too much. The damage in one sense has been done because now everyone's opinion of the bullpen has already been biased by what happened early. And that's going to take a long time to clear. Yeah. But the past three seasons, I think the Texas Rangers have opened with horrible bullpens and then they've recovered by just kind of shifting some pieces around. And there's the year they went out and they made a few trades to get guys like Jake Diekman and Sam Dyson, etc. Mm-hmm. So you can you can tweak. But the Nationals, I don't think uh, they shouldn't need to go and get another Mark Melanson if they don't want to. They could potentially get the very same Mark Melanson mm-hmm. if they wanted to open <laughs> the pocket books. But I understand that he has a stretching routine that might have caused the Giants to come crumbling undone from the middle. That's a reference to a Ken Rosenthal article that came out on Monday. I realize I set that up with zero context. So the Nationals, they do not have, like you said, a strong incentive to make a move now. I don't know why they would dilly-dally. It does feel like they've been linked to Robertson for, I don't know, half of a year, if not more than that. Mm -hmm. I would guess at this point, given that nothing has gotten done, I would assume that almost certainly the stumbling block has been that they just haven't been cleared to spend the money to get him. Mm -hmm. So that's something that ownership could change on a whim if they wanted to. Maybe if the owners have watched enough of these bullpen games, then they would be willing to just kind of put that out of mind by just writing another check and allowing Mm -hmm. them to get David Robinson. Failing that, they could always go for, I don't know, Tommy Canley, who's great and Mm -hmm. also on the White Sox, or they could get them both. So I don't know what they could do. 
but they definitely don't need to do anything now because as horrible as a bullpen has been and overall it has been horrible they do have the second best record third best fourth best oh man no okay fourth best record in the national league but <laughs> best in the national league east best out of the central they have been worse than the dodgers d-backs and rockies but only one of those actually matters to them so nationals doing great despite a horrible bullpen just going to show that you do not need good relief in order to be a very very good baseball team mm-hmm. well i was about to bring up the ken rosenthal article that you just alluded to and it's uh, about the Giants chemistry troubles and this is always it's one of those questions that comes up whenever a team is doing terribly and was expected to be good and isn't good then you start hearing about clubhouse problems in many cases and you don't know whether that explains why they've been bad or whether it's a product of why they've been bad or both but this was a Kind of a a fun article for multiple reasons. One, as you mentioned, the Melanson stretching (laughs) session controversy, which is uh, really kind of crazy. So, So Melanson, I'm quoting now, sources say rubbed some teammates the wrong way early in the season by putting an end to the bullpen's 3.30 p.m. stretching sessions before night games, a practice that the relievers began in 2012. And I was wondering about the mechanism here like did he forbid everyone else from stretching he said you guys can't stretch anymore did he just say i'm not joining you for the stretching session and when the closer doesn't stretch then no one else wants to stretch i i don't know i'd like to know exactly what was going on there but he was evidently late for some stretching sessions i don't know lots of fuss about the stretching sessions but i'm always intrigued by this because often you will get a team that has a great reputation for chemistry and then fast forward a year or two and suddenly it will be completely the opposite. Like the Oakland A's in 2013 were like the model chemistry team and Sam wrote about them for ESPN and he wasn't clear whether that was an intentional tactic for the A's to get clubhouse guys or whether it had just happened somehow. But then last year, of course, they were a bad chemistry team and they had Billy Butler and Danny Valencia fighting and, and clubhouse unrest and all of that. And so that was just a span of like three seasons. And now you have the Giants who are probably renowned for having the best clubhouse chemistry or like they're, I don't know, other than possibly the Cardinals, the Giants have been the team that you are most likely to hear they play the game the right way or like when someone signs with them, they say, you know, oh, these guys, uh, they know what they're doing or you want to be part of this clubhouse or they're so professional or or whatever. It's a different feeling in this clubhouse. I'm pretty sure I remember Melanson saying things to that effect when he signed last offseason and yet it can all seemingly fall apart very quickly and I don't know whether that again just has to do with the results or whether there are more things going on here but it's always I think helpful to have the reminder that it's hard to predict this stuff and it's hard to stay consistent as far as chemistry and the clubhouse goes from year to year because Everything is changing. Players are constantly changing. The Giants haven't had all that much turnover, really, and and Bruce Bochy is still there, of course, but maybe all it takes is, like, one guy leaving or one guy coming to screw things up, and that was the other fun anecdote from the story was the Angel Pagan (laughs) bit in here about how Pagan was evidently such a clubhouse cancer pariah whatever you want to call it that he brought the whole team together because of that and rosenthal writes some with the giants mused that the team even misses angel pagan who created an odd sort of unity because most of the players disliked him that's, that's funny i think we've all probably experienced 
dynamics like that in the past with your friends at school or at work or whatever like there's one person you can't stand and you just bond over how much you don't like that person and if you've never had this experience maybe you are that person i don't know anyway (laughs) this was a fun fun article good inside stories from rosenthal yeah, I enjoy it. And I guess Angel Pagan would be sort of like, I don't know, the Grant Brisby of the Giants. We all hate him, and we're all better <laughs> friends because of how much we don't like Grant. I was trying to think of the right comparison while you were talking because you're right. I think there are teams that would argue to their own death that they had very good chemistry and they would swear by it. And, and the Giants are, are one of them. They've ridden that sort of can't put your finger on it sort of dynamic to tremendous success. They've been the most successful baseball team of the past decade, you could say. But mm-hmm. the best I could come up with on sort of short notice is if you, I don't know, if you have a picture of like billowing flames coming out of a building and then if you just get the picture just right, it can look like, I don't know, Jesus or the head of a dragon or a bunny rabbit or something. I guess I could have said clouds. Clouds would have been less grim. So just like seeing an image in a cloud where you could take a picture of a cloud no longer billowing smoke, let's just say a nice regular cloud, mm-hmm. and you can see a turtle or a turtle and a bunny rabbit. Any shape. I don't need to come up with the shapes. You know shapes. You know what they are, what they look like other things other nouns that you see in a cloud and if you look at that picture you can say absolutely that looks exactly like a bunny rabbit chasing a turtle on Mm -hmm. a race car i don't know that's a very complicated cloud but thunderheads develop quickly and you could draw the outline you can say just in this moment everything came together and it was exactly like that it was exactly in that shape but you think of how often a relationship between two people falls apart and it never happens without warning but you know we've all dated we've all been there you also doesn't have to be any sort of romantic relationship, just any sort of friendship with an individual. And it can change very quickly, especially when you are around that person a lot, mm-hmm. or if you are around that person because of a very passionate cause, which would be akin to playing in a baseball season. So the the dynamic between any two people is tenuous and complicated. And then you throw in 25-way interpersonal relationship with people who did not select to be around one another for the most part. And then you have these weird coaches and then sort of like pseudo bench coaches where I'm still not even entirely clear what the roles are, but there's just all these different authority aspects to it as well. And you can imagine that any sort of good feeling that's collective in there is just such a delicate house of cards that anything could topple it over, anything conceivably. Mm -hmm. And you could achieve that same harmoniousness again, almost without reason. Sometimes it's as simple as just getting a good night's sleep and you come back to work and whoever was not feeling well just feels more refreshed. But there is just not, as far as I know, any real good way of predicting or projecting the hormones that drive human relationships and and dynamics. And so I think this is probably why we have reached kind of an impasse. I don't know. It's just such a difficult thing to study in the first place. But all the people who have talked about the importance of chemistry and then all the analysts who have downplayed it because there's no, you can't find it. Well, I don't think that the two are at odds. I think that chemistry is real, but you just can't really know if you're still going to have it tomorrow. And the Giants Mm -hmm. would be one example of that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of things going on with the Giants and Grant, Grant has a TV show now. (laughs) Yeah, I have not sent sent him an email to ask about that. But yeah, co-hosting a show, but still writing recaps of the second worst team in Major League Baseball. But doing these shows airing, I assume they have to tape after the game because these are post-game shows. Yeah, that's insane. Grant has he has a family. 
And he's like, the shows air at 11 o'clock at night after your yeah. standard 7 o'clock West Coast game. And right. he has to write. Maybe the show is just him writing his recap. I don't know. <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> How many times? <laughs> That's a 26 episode season. Giants That's Outsiders. Yeah. Incredible. Check it out on, uh... And of all years. <laughs> Of all years to launch that as a program, they chose this one. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Do you think that they are giving Grant a TV show because the Giants are terrible and no one's watching them anyway? Or are they giving Grant a TV show because the Giants are terrible and no one's watching them, so they have to juice the ratings by bringing in Grant? Well, I am someone who's biased <laughs> because I'm in favor of his voice. I think yes, that's outstanding. Right. I would, mm -hmm. I love to hear him talk. I don't know mm -hmm. if anybody loves to watch Grant talk, but I am fascinated <laughs> to see how this goes, and I would love to know more. I don't know why. I haven't sent him a message, but hey, Grant, if you're listening to this, send us an email. Explain what you're doing. I'm confused. He's not listening. He's too busy being on TV. <laughs> NBC Sports Bay Area. Everyone watched Grant's show after Giants games. All right. So the nominal topic on this episode is one that Grant would hate. It's the Dodgers. And everyone's writing about the Dodgers, talking about the Dodgers today for a good reason. They have, as we speak, won 10 games in a row. And the last win on Sunday was a really wild one. It featured Brandon McCarthy getting the yips and then ungetting the yips. <laughs> it featured Adam Adovino throwing four wild pitches. There were five run-scoring wild pitches in the game. Kenley Jensen walked someone and had an RBI double. I don't know which was weirder. And, of course, Cody Bellinger hit his couple of homers. And so I think everyone's writing about the Dodgers now because they have succeeded finally in pulling ahead of their division rivals, at least for now. They've been kind of neck and neck with the Diamondbacks and Rockies all season long, and they just swept the Rockies. So they're now four and a half games ahead of them as we speak, or maybe four games ahead of them, and two and a half ahead of the Diamondbacks. So it seems as if there is finally some sort of separation appearing there. And I think that it's a good time to talk about the Dodgers, not just in the context of this season, which, by the way, those preseason projections of the Dodgers looking a lot better <laughs> than the Cubs, those are, are looking pretty good in retrospect. <laughs> but I think Whoops. that <laughs> it's a good time to assess the Dodgers' long-term future because I wrote an article a couple years ago in March of 2015 at Grantland, which was itself sort of a take on a Sam Miller article that he had written a couple of years earlier. And he had written that when the Texas Rangers were riding really high and they were like the best team in baseball and they had a great farm system and it seemed inconceivable that they would ever stop winning and just not have a, a juggernaut that was just constantly replenishing talent with new talent. And so Sam wrote an article trying to think of ways that the Rangers could fail basically and like looking at the history of empires and civilizations that have fallen and trying to apply them to the Texas Rangers and that article didn't age so well because like <laughs> two years after that the Rangers are like one of the worst teams in baseball and I think Sam got a follow-up article out of that so it worked out okay for him but my article taking that same sort of structure and trying to come up with scenarios in which the Dodgers could fail to succeed or, or at least be dethroned has aged well, I suppose, because people are writing exactly the same thing about the Dodgers now that I was writing in March of 2015 because nothing has really changed. I just reread most of that article and other than the fact that I called Yasiel Puig one of the dozen best players in baseball or something. 
most of the article still applies. And the premise of the article was basically that if you were designing a franchise from the ground up, you would design the Dodgers because they had everything going for them. They were good in the short term. They weren't like a total powerhouse team or anything, but they were projected to win. They were the best team in the division. It was a weak division and they did make the playoffs, of course, and win the division. They've won it for a bunch of years in a row now. And they also seem to have a great long-term future. They had one of the top-rated farm systems at the time. And they also had this brilliant new front office brain trust with like six different former GMs and Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi and Josh Burns and all of this brain power that seemed to dwarf many other front offices. And then, of course, they had the payroll. They had the highest payroll in baseball, too. And they also had a, a ballpark that's believed to be uh, among the best. And they had Vin Scully at the time. So they kind of had everything going for them. And I talked to Stan Kasten there president and CEO and I was talking about like windows and and when the Dodgers window was or or whatever and he immediately interrupted to say there is no window where the Dodgers we should be contending every year period and they have done that to this point and they seem to be as well positioned for the future today as they did two and a half years ago and Dave Cameron wrote a post for Fangraphs on Monday, essentially comparing them to last year's Cubs and pointing out that they've had plenty of things go wrong, but they've still been great and their lineup is really deep. It's like the the NL equivalent of the Astros lineup and they have, as both of us have written recently, the, the best defensive catchers who are getting them all sorts of extra strikes and big strike zones. And even though so much has gone wrong with the pitching staff and the starting rotation and Julio Arias is now out for the year and maybe next year too and Randy McCarthy, who was great up until yesterday, looked really shaky for an inning or two there. And Kenta Maeda has, has had issues and Ryu has had issues. And still they have the best war of any team's pitching staff somehow. So I wanted to, to ask you if you could think of any reason why, I guess, either A, the Dodgers would not be the team that you would want to start with today if you just had to pick a team to, I don't know, win the World Series in any given time frame or make the playoffs the most number of times in any given time frame, or just if you could come up with any way that things could unravel for this team. Because in 2015, when I wrote about this, I, I came up with a, a few scenarios in which maybe things could fall apart for the Dodgers. So one was they had this staff full of injury-prone pitchers, and I said, well, maybe that completely backfires. And it kind of did like all of the injury prone pitchers kept getting injuries but it just didn't really affect them didn't really hurt them and that still seems to be the case because they just have this depth where they can bring in Alex Wood or whatever and he'll be great and they can just have a, a six-man rotation and when someone gets hurt they bring in another guy another scenario I had was slow prospect replenishment so you know the, some guys get older and some guys hit free agency and for whatever reason this vaunted farm system doesn't produce the talent that it seems like it should that doesn't seem to be happening Cody Bellinger of course is the latest arrival but they have lots of young guys even with Urias out now for a while they've got Jack Peterson they've got other guys in the pipeline another scenario I had was like the TV deal gets devalued somehow like renegotiated or something because they had this giant TV deal that was just assuring them that they could spend a ton of money don't think that's happened they're still bringing in lots of money there 
I brought up shaky lines of communication because at that point they still had Don Mattingly and there was some question about how he would gel with Friedman and Zaidi and whether there would be problems there. And well, now Mattingly's not there anymore and Dave Roberts seems to be on the same page as the front office. So so that's out. And then I also had the theory that maybe because they were recruiting these small market GMs, like maybe the small market GMs wouldn't take full advantage of the big market and the payroll and they would keep operating like they were still with the Rays and A's and they wouldn't take full advantage of the resources that they had. And I don't know that that's really happened. I mean, they haven't (laughs) signed that many huge free agent deals, I guess. They signed Kenley Jansen last winter. They extended Clayton Kershaw. Was that a a post-Friedman move? Did Friedman do that or was that before Friedman? I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, well, you can Google that. But they haven't really had to do all that much because the roster has been so deep and they've had the prospects and they've resisted the urge to trade them. So they haven't really had to go into the free agent market, but I guess that's still one potential thing you could bring up. And then the last one I had was just that riches and smarts aren't worth as much as they once were. And I think this was around the time when everyone was talking about parity and how payroll and money didn't seem to be making as much of a difference as it used to. And things were so competitive, maybe that it would just be hard for the Dodgers to stand out at least the way that earlier dynasties did. And to some extent, that's come true. Like the NL West is more competitive now than it has been for a while. And a couple of teams are are giving them a run for their money, although the Giants have completely fallen off the table. So those were my theories. And fast forwarding more than two years now, I don't know that any of them is any more of a concern than it was then. Probably most of them are less of a concern then. So do you see any vulnerabilities in the Dodgers or aside from the fact that we just have a hard time projecting more than a couple of years into the future with any team, is this team just totally set for the foreseeable future? So I've never seen the movie San Andreas, Uh but I feel like that might be one reason why the Dodgers could encounter (laughs) some harder times down the road. Uh, Incidentally, the Kershaw extension was signed in January 2014. It looks like Andrew Friedman joined the Dodgers in October 2014. So kudos previous general manager whose name I have already forgotten. Was that Ned? Did he go straight from Ned Coletti to Friedman? Yeah, right, because Coletti was part of the Friedman front office for a while, or maybe still is. I don't know. Yeah, hysterical. So I think that the the biggest problem here is just that when things are going well, it's really difficult to envision what it could look like when things aren't. And the same is true, vice versa. And this is one of the reasons why I think fans are seldom at what you could describe as an appropriate state of optimism or pessimism, because no Mm -hmm. matter what, a team is always coming off at least one win or at least one loss. And those little pushes do have an effect on your optimism or pessimism, because it's really easy to see more wins after win, and it's really easy to see more losses after loss. Now, this is a micro phenomenon, but I think it also applies to the greater scheme. And I mean, the the easiest example, we can deconstruct the Dodgers bit by bit, and it wouldn't even be all that hard. I don't mean to suggest that they aren't in a great situation. I'll get into that a little more. And by get into that, I mean, just repeat what you said in different words. (laughs) But the easiest thing to do, the easiest thing to do, it was just November, last November, everybody was writing, you might not have even realized, but when you were asleep, listener, you were writing an article about how the Cubs were a developing dynasty. Everybody Mm -hmm. wrote an article 
all about the Cubs dynasty. And right now we're halfway through the season and they're a game and a half behind the Brewers. Yeah. And it doesn't mean the Cubs aren't still going to win their division. It doesn't mean the Cubs aren't still a really good organization in a hell of a spot. They have a lot of young talent. Kyle Schwarber's still a good baseball player. I don't care what just happened. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they're here and they deserve to be 38 and 37 or something like that. And the biggest problem is that the greatest pitching slash defensive unit in baseball history from last season Mm-hmm. has regressed and regressed hard. Some of that, it's not all talent. It seems like a lot of it is connected to overuse, and that's overuse as a consequence of being too good for two <laughs> years in a row that they had to keep pitching. But the Cubs have not come apart, but they have not run away with things in the way that they were supposed to. I don't know mm-hmm. how many team preview podcasts I interrupted by saying that Pakota forecasted the Dodgers to be like eight games better than the <laughs> Cubs this year. Well, by right. the way, they're better than the Cubs by 12 games right yeah. now in the standings, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be the Cubs. You can look at the Mets who look like they're in a horrible situation. Uh, They had all that fantastic pitching and now they're down Matt Harvey. They're down now with Syndergaard. They're down Zach Wheeler. They're down the other one. They still have Jacob deGrom, who's pitching fine, but it's hard to tell who's actually doing what because they're in like the most laughable division in the history of sports. Mm-hmm. Only one team is good, and that team is the worst bullpen in the world that has ever experienced. Mm-hmm. So the Cubs aren't screwed, obviously. The Mets aren't screwed. They can come right back and win 95 games next season. There's no reason. Well, there's some reasons, but there's no reason why that wouldn't be a possibility. So even a team that's down on their luck can still bounce back. But it's just it's that easy to drop a team from being extremely good to being just fine or or, or even worse than that. It's not hard. You you have Julio Urias, who's now out for maybe two years, and mm-hmm. he was he's not far removed from being the, the top prospect in baseball, at least the top pitching prospect in baseball. And that's not his fault. That's nobody's fault. It's just, hey, pitching, it's bad for you. It's kind of like smoking, except it doesn't come with a warning label. Clayton Kershaw missed time last season with a back injury, and since then, he's allowed a career-high number of home runs. He still hasn't completely found his slider. You've written about it, and he's made some progress, but something changed when Kershaw missed action, and he's been very good. Hasn't been himself. Kenley Jansen throws one pitch extremely hard as a closer. Who knows what could happen there? Justin Turner is one of the weirder track records in baseball, and right now he's batting something like 476. <laughs> right. <laughs> something absurd, but there are enough issues, and it's all buttressed by the fact that, yeah, they have Corey Seager, and they have Cody Bellinger, and they mm-hmm. have Jock Peterson, and they have all this young talent everywhere yes. they had the fourth best farm system ranking according to baseball america this spring they currently have five prospects in the top 100 of mlb.com's top 100 or mlb.com's updated list although none inside the top 40 now that bellinger has uh i guess erased himself from consideration there so still <laughs> lots of talent to come yep Oh, and also Chris Taylor's good now. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so they have so much support in the same way that the Cubs have so much support and the Cubs have even more coming in the system. But I guess maybe I don't even need to advance beyond the Cubs point. The Chicago Cubs, the developing dynasty, the defending world champions have 38 wins and 37 losses, and they are still still looking up at the Milwaukee Brewers. They have not played better lately. They've just kind of been the same. And this was a team that it was extremely hard to poke holes in. And for that reason alone, the same could be said of the Dodgers. But Mm -hmm. still, like you said, great farm system, great roster right now. And they have more resources to spend than anyone probably except for the Yankees. Mm -hmm. So still not a team that you would rather begin with, I don't think. Mm -hmm. If there was ever any debate, and there was, if there was debate about whether you'd rather start with the Dodgers or the Cubs a few months ago, I think it's pretty clear what the proper answer would be now. Cubs are still close. Maybe they're second, maybe they're third. I don't know. The great separator between these teams and the Astros, who are also legitimately amazing, is that the Astros presumably cannot afford to keep all this talent around. They are probably 
going to be more susceptible to sort of the uh, window theory, I guess, than a team like the Dodgers who conceivably could just be good all the time. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you'd ever start with the Astros, but yeah, yeah. The Dodgers still number one. Not that Houston's a, a small market or anything. They they should be able to spend. They've certainly been able to save enough over the last years of not spending that you'd like them to spend. But yeah, obviously they're they're not the Dodgers and the Yankees. No one is the Dodgers and the Yankees. But but yeah, even though like Puig has taken steps back since I wrote that article. Everyone's writing the, is Kershaw actually the best pitcher in baseball anymore, or is he merely second or third or whatever? All the things that have gone wrong, the Rich Hill struggles this year, and yet they are pretty unassailable, and they even have one of the youngest lineups or average batter ages too in addition to just having one of the the best lineups, period. So it's hard for me to imagine, like the, the way that the Rangers went south after Sam wrote about them was just an incredible wave of injuries and that hurt them a lot for a, a couple of years there and then they also had some some prospects like the profars and, and that type of person who didn't really pan out as much as you would have expected them to and so I guess the Dodgers are vulnerable to that too but they've collected such incredible depth here and their payroll allows them to stockpile so much talent that I don't think they're as vulnerable to that as the Rangers were and that was like a historic stack of injuries that the Rangers went through but even if the Dodgers went through that too I don't know that it would derail them because they kind of (laughs) did like last year they (laughs) they had the most pitcher injuries certainly maybe the most pitcher injuries on record and they had like as many people starting for them as terrible teams typically do, and yet they were successful. Even even the pitching staff was successful amid all of those injuries and all of that turnover because they just had so many guys who for most teams would have been a fourth or fifth starter or whatever, and for the Dodgers they were like a seventh or eighth starter, and they just got to use them when their top-line guys got hurt. So I don't know how this front office, especially with the smarts that they have there and the creative stuff that they're doing and the resources that they have. It's hard for me even to come up with a scenario where this team would not be not only good, but like the favorite in the division for the next, gosh, I mean, five years. Like I know that (laughs) just the error bars are enormous when you start going out that far, but like they have Peterson, who's 25. They have Bellinger, who's 21. They have Seager, who's 23. These guys presumably are going to be good for a while. And, you know, that's like a core, a foundation of a team that you'd think would be pretty solid going forward, even if they do have some guys age early or or whatever it is. What I like the most about the Dodgers front office, and you you talked about this a little bit when you raised the concern that maybe they as an organization would be too closely wed to their small market behavior Mm -hmm. because so many of them came from smaller market operations. What I like about it is that they're not necessarily unique in this way, but maybe they are the most unique in this way. Sorry for semantic fiends who disagree (laughs) with most unique, but they have this sort of small market mentality where they have not allowed themselves to go too crazy just as a response to having all these resources. They still, just like a team with half the payroll, worry a lot about depth. They still don't Mm -hmm. worry about sort of the sexy move. And the best example might be just when they 
traded away the very recognizable Matt Kemp for some no-name Yosemite Grandal, mm-hmm. and etc. And that's not it. People have expected the Dodgers to make sort of, I don't know, the Chris Sale splash or the Chris Archer mm-hmm. splash, and they still haven't done that. Of course, they have gone out and they've done things like sign Kenley Jansen or mm-hmm. uh, all that depth doesn't come without any cost. They have, of course, spent money. And one of the benefits is that they can afford to have Scott Casimir doing nothing on payroll. But yeah, it's fine. And they can survive that when Brandon McCarthy wasn't pitching. Well, that's fine. They could they could survive that. So, of course, there is a benefit from having all that money, but they still are very reluctant to move their their prospects. You saw how closely they hung on to their prospects when they were negotiating for Brian Dozer and they, and yeah. they wound up settling for Logan Forsyth and said who I know he hasn't had a fantastic season but it turns out didn't need to they have Chris <laughs> Taylor I don't know it's a weird year yeah. but we've seen enough examples of the Dodgers holding on to their youth that I think that they have not been corrupted by the resources that they have it hasn't happened yet and when you combine the knowledge they have the resources they have and that sort of like almost obnoxious responsibility mm-hmm. then one of the most likely outcomes is just this juggernaut that they've built. Yeah, it's really good to be the Dodgers. All right. Well, we have uh, failed to identify a, a weakness. Like just so many things would have to go wrong for them not to be able to like to spend their way out of it or promote prospects their way out of it or trade prospects their way out of it or, or whatever. It's just such a, a rich roster and system that it's just hard to see them going into a season anytime soon with you know not a a really good chance to make the playoffs so yes that's the benefits of having a historic and wealthy franchise but they have also assembled a a really smart roster too wait i have one more point yeah because i just noticed the dodgers apparently did not know this not only do they have brandon morrow but all of a sudden he's throwing three miles per hour harder than last year go dodgers (laughs) did not know that Yeah, one uh, very quick thing I meant to bring up in the banter. I guess the trade deadline season sort of began today. I don't know whether (laughs) a Dany Echevarria is, I mean, that's like a trade from the Marlins to the Rays is about as boring (laughs) as you could possibly, like a salary (laughs) dump from the Marlins to the Rays. That is not getting a lot of people excited on either end of that deal. Although you wrote about it and you did your best (laughs) to make it exciting. You titled your post, How Adani Echeverria is Interesting. I don't know whether you were trying to convince readers or trying to convince yourself and whether you succeeded at either. (laughs) I did not. (laughs) Okay, there are three ways. There are three ways that Adani Echeverria is most interesting to the average baseball fan. One, he is a major league baseball player. That is extraordinary. He's so good. You wouldn't believe how good he is. You want to go play catch like down in the park with Adani Echeverria? He would throw your glove. The ball, your glove would come right off. You would hate it. You couldn't stand playing catch with Adani Echeverria. He's so much better than you. And then the other way he's interesting, the Marlins used to talk a lot about Echeverria's defense. They loved his defense and the numbers never matched up and it yeah. was always confusing. We're like, oh, the Marlins is just a backwards organization, whatever. But they have this like pretty well-respected infield coach and Perry right. Hill. Mm-hmm. And long story short, all of a sudden in 2015, Echeverria's numbers started to be good and he learned some things about, uh, I don't remember the story whether it was him or D. Gordon because they both suddenly got good at defense because it turns out they both didn't really know what they were doing before and they just relied on the raw talent. Anyway, Echeverria's numbers went from bad to good so now his numbers are as good as his reputation thirdly and this is the bigger one this is what i addressed today itraveria looks to be a good defensive shortstop he's only getting paid something like 4.25 million dollars this season so no real financial commitment surprise the marlins didn't want to pay him the rest of it but two years ago 
I guess three years ago it was, when Echeverria had his best season. He was a three-win above replacement shortstop, and he had good defensive numbers, and he hit like 10% below league average. He was still wasn't a good hitter. And then last year, his offensive numbers fell apart. His, uh, his numbers, pick a number, it dropped. It got worse. But now that we have the benefit of StatCast information at Baseball Savant, they have rolled out a statistic that is, it goes by, I guess, expected WOBA, expected mm-hmm. uh, weighted on base percentage. And we have not messed around enough with it to know how reliable it is, but it's cool to look at. And it turns out by that statistic, Echeverria was actually a better hitter last season than the season before when he overachieved. Last season, he greatly underachieved by that measure. By the uh, unrelated but also neat hard hit rate statistic at Fangraphs, Echeverria was a better hitter last season. I don't need to go into detail about Adene Echeverria. Nobody wants to hear it. That's why I'm talking so fast. But I think that there is some actual upside here. And in such a boring, like, typically Rays way where the Marlins mm-hmm. were just looking to shed some salary and the Rays are like, whatever, we'll get a good defender and we are probably going to win the surplus value battle here because they yeah. gave up two nothing prospects. And it doesn't matter. It's not going to win the Rays World Series probably, but it's just a little tiny little inefficiency. The Marlins made a move they probably didn't need to make and the Rays made a move that's going to help them a tiny little bit and even though most people probably won't notice this is just what the rays do all the time if you look at their transaction log every single one of the moves is like this they just like add a few million dollars of surplus value and mm-hmm. in this move that nobody cares about and then well here they are they're one game out of the wild card race and they mm-hmm. don't even have a kevin kiermeyer everybody counts the rays out but they kind of know what they're doing in yep. this really annoying subtle way yep Well, very low-profile start to trading season, but I guess we can say it has officially begun with this move. All right, so we will end there. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have recently pledged their support include Daryl Purpose, Jared P. Stout, Daniel Zimmerman, Steve Simpson, and Dan Stapleton. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. If you're looking for something else to listen to, Michael Bauman and I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. We also talked about the Dodgers. We interviewed Dr. Jeffrey Dugas about the injury to Urias and what his prognosis is and why shoulder injuries like that seem to have become less common among Major League pitchers. We also talked to the Freeze, Nigel Talton, the Braves between-inning phenomenon. Asked him if he could beat Billy Hamilton and how good he'd be on a big league roster. So you can check that out on the Ringer MLB show feed. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you and answer those emails soon. I scheduled my second Instagram post and I was looking for another full post to write for tomorrow, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do that. Mm. I don't know what there is to write about. Yeah. I guess baseball. Yeah. But like, why? (laughs) I don't know why I'm talking about baseball before the podcast. (laughs) This is stupid.